You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 88. Today, we're asking the question, why are organizations sometimes bad at making decisions? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. For the last few episodes, we've been discussing some older papers that we think are still very useful for understanding current safety science. And today, we're going to talk about one of Drew's uh, favorite older papers. Andrew, I remember when I first started my PhD, you gave me about five or six papers that had nothing to do with safety, or so I thought at the time. And one of those papers is the one that we'll discuss today, and another of which we'll discuss in the next episode. And I'm not quite sure why you picked those five or six papers, because they were very left of field at the time for me. But on reflection, I think it must have just been to expand my worldview and maybe test how, how open to, to new perspectives I was. Yeah, David, I, th I think every paper in that list is actually something that Rob Alexander made me read. And I think it's just that when you find a good paper that tells you something interesting about the world, you want other people to read it. And just like the more different ways of looking at things you've got, the more power you've got yourself to both sort of write interesting stuff and to avoid copying other people's ideas and just rehashing the same old things. Yeah, and also, Drew, I think for me with this paper about organisational decision-making, I'd spent 17 or 18 years immersed inside organisations and decision-making processes without really ever stepping back and trying to sort of question or understand or make sense of how those decisions got made. I was just usually either happy or upset at decisions inside the organisation. So let's jump in. And I don't, I'm not sure if this paper is open access, Drew, but um, I'm sure it wouldn't be too hard to get your hands on. But let's jump right in and discuss discuss the paper. Sure. So the paper is called A Garbage Can Model of Organisational Choice. Um, and right, right off the bat, I just love the title. Yeah, any, anything with a good title is going to get me to read it. You can find it online. It's not technically open access, but if you just search for the title and PDF, there are lots of places where it's easily available without going through a paywall. It's published in a journal called Administrative Science Quarterly. I've never had something published there myself, but it's one of my sort of like career goals. I'd love to get something published in ASQ. It's a top tier journal. And it's really interesting for safety researchers because you see stuff published in ASQ and 20 years later, someone puts safety in front of the name and it gets published in safety science. I remember, Drew, we had a crack at ASQ with uh, my professional identity paper, which was really interesting re applied research. It was... It was uh, a new field in terms of a new profession that had the research applied and the editor uh, or the associate editor didn't even go for peer review, just came back and said, oh, there's nothing new in this. It's a new application of theory, but there's there's no new idea here. So maybe try a safety journal. Yeah. And, and I think that's the way with a lot of safety research is we're just applying ideas that have been previously discussed in other fields sometimes. Um, so this one was published in 1972. The authors are Michael D. Cohen, James Marsh, and Johan Olsen. And as far as I can tell, all three of these authors are famous because they were authors on this particular paper. So they've all got their own Wikipedia pages, um, and the paper's got its own Wikipedia page, and has been cited 13,000 times, which is a lot. David, anything else you would just want to say about the sort of like paper itself? No, I think it's it's a, it's an interesting it's it's a sort of a different paper that we'll talk about on the way through a, a different paper. It's sort of a mix of theory and and modelling, so it's a little bit different for our normal safety papers. But it's something. Drew, do you just want to talk a little bit about that that format because it's something that I don't think we've we've had in a paper on the podcast yet. No, we we haven't done a modelling paper really on the podcast, and you don't get a lot of them in safety, but you see them a lot in economics and sometimes in criminology. So the basic idea is you have this theory for how the world works and you turn the theory into as close to a mathematical model as you can. And you then run the model. And if the model produces results which match what you see in the real world, then you can claim that your theory and your model are reasonably representative 
And then you have fun with it. You put in new parameters and new situations and you see what happens. So a lot of economics is like that. When people do economic forecasts, they've got these models that successfully predict the past because we know what the past looks like. And then they use them to say, what, what are things going to be like if we tinker with the interest rates? Or what are things going to be like if we introduce this new tax rebate? So we've got a model that gives us the correct answers so far, and we think, therefore, it'll give us the correct answer in new situations. And one of the reasons why this paper was so famous is because in 1972, most people didn't know what a computer was. <laughs> and so these people were using their mathematical model and uh, creating a computer program. It's written in a fun computer language called Fortran, which I had to learn for my engineering degree, but is mostly a sort of dead archaic language these days. And so the novelty was using computer programs to do your modeling. Today, the computer programming is woefully out of date and seems just very naughty and antiquated. And so we're going to focus on the theory in our discussion today. Yeah, I mean, Drew, it's half a century ago. Um, so but it's a nice, maybe a nice tie into the discussion last episode, episode 87 on cybernetics um, that we had within the systems theory discussion about can we create a computer that can replicate decision making? And in this situation was kind of organizational decision making. So, Drew, I thought a bit of a back backstory here, which is always um, interesting to how these collaborations come about, particularly for such a such a famous paper and how they come about with observations of the real world. So at the time, uh, and we'll talk about all of this a little bit further throughout the, the podcast, but at the time, a lot of decision-making theory was being done in, in psychology and, it was, and, and economics. And it was sort of at this intersection of, you know, what's the rational choice? So the economists and the, 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 the rational choice around decision-making and the psychologists and what was the motivation or the emotion around decision-making and, and very much about individual decision-making. But organizations are not people. And sometimes I think our listeners might, might reflect and go, I'm not even sure who in the organization made this decision, but suddenly a decision's been made uh, and, and we've got a way forward, but it can be very hard to pinpoint who made that decision. So how this all this paper came about was uh, Johan Olsen was a doctoral student at the University of Bergen in Norway. So he came across to the University of California. And at the time, uh, Irvine was a visiting scholar there for a couple of years in the late 60s. And James March was both the Dean of Social Sciences as well as the Professor of Psychology uh, through the end of the 1960s. And so coinciding with the time of the, this visit and, and these these two other researchers there, there were all of these scholars were present at the right time in the right school in the same lab to witness the university conduct a search process to hire a new dean. And what happened was ultimately the search process ended. None of the potential candidates were chosen for the role, and the head of the search committee took the position of dean. And during an interview, Olson describes this chaotic decision-making process that he was observing at the university throughout this search process and how it served as this foundational experience for the three scholars to later collaborate and produce their model. Andrew, I kind of imagine for the replacement of a position in the, in the university as important as the dean, there's a lot of water cooler conversation happening amongst the academics around the search process and the choices that, are, that the people in, in the organisation are making around this, this decision. Yeah, so, so I've seen a bit of this when we were doing our safety clutter research. So on the one hand, you're sitting doing this research that sees the world as very formal and modelled and described by theory. On the other hand, you're working inside an organisation which just appears to be utterly chaotic. So, you know, these are three researchers in decision-making theory. They're experts in making decisions and in how people make decisions. And so they're sort of sitting in the office doing research and then leaving the office and they're part of a university that has got this massively important decision that is just getting made in the weirdest ad hoc process. And so they thought, okay, we've got to have a theory of decision-making that can explain how you can have meetings where some of the people who are supposed to make the decision don't show up to the meeting. And so the people who were there decide something that's totally different from the previous meeting. And then, you know, the next meeting reverses the decision again and eventually no decisions made. And we come up with something that doesn't even follow the processes. So they had to have a theory that could account for just how anar anarchic a university is. Yeah, and I think organisations are just the way you described it there. I'm sure many of our listeners can, you know, can uh, can see that situation in their own organisation. So this, so so the authors sort of said previous decision making processes, you know, saw 
individual actors in the decision-making process as reasonable and rational and, you know, following a process and, and that was quite repeatable. And what they found in this situation was that all of that sort of went out the window and there was lots of other messiness and variables going on and, and compromises and trade-offs and, and then I'm actually tired of this decision. I just want it to go away and I want to move on to the next thing. So they, they're also doing things like observing interactions between people, nonverbal communication and, and misinterpretations of other people's uh, positions. And really, I suppose, Drew, just left this example, like you said, with a whole bunch of open questions that the existing decision-making theory couldn't, couldn't account for. And so by 1972, when this paper gets published, the, the three authors had moved on from to Stanford University uh, in, in various positions. And then they published this paper, this garbage can model of organizational choice. And at the time, they were using version five of their programming language, uh, which you mentioned through Fortran too, basically. So what you see in the paper in terms of all of the models and the data is, is coming out of version five of their model. Yeah, no, just for clarity, I should say that if you've heard of the idea of bounded rationality, that already existed at this time. So these weren't the first researchers to say, hey, decisions are made under limited certainty and with people only having a certain amount of attention span to focus on decisions. But what they did is they took decisions outside of people's heads and put them in the organization and said that we can't just deal with the fact that individuals have limited capacity to think carefully about things, but that decisions aren't made inside people's heads. Decisions are made in meetings. And so we've got to understand the interplay between people in looking at how decisions are made. Um, so should we dive into the text of the paper, David? Yeah, let's do that. Let's let's take. How about you start us with stepping off from there in terms of the background of the paper? Okay, so we've basically broken it up here into sort of three bits. We've got a bit of background. We've got the basic theory that they came up with, and then some of the implications of that theory. So the background is they're describing what they call organized anarchies, which sounds a bit like a contradiction. And the idea is that all organizations are organized anarchies at least part of the time. Um, and we'll describe a little bit what an organized anarchy is in a moment. But there are some organizations that are uh, predominantly or almost totally organized anarchies. And in particular, organizations which are public, so like the public service, educational organizations, particularly universities, and informal or what they call illegitimate organizations. They don't go deeply into that, but I'm thinking of things like, you know, standards committees, where it's very ad hoc how the organization comes together and breaks apart. So there are sort of three properties to look for that you know you're in an organized anarchy. Um, the first one is what they call problematic preferences. So the idea here is that most formal models of decision making assume at least we know what people want. But in organized anarchies, people don't. And so you look at a, a method like the analytic hierarchy process or the house of quality you're supposed to make decisions by you work out what people's values are, you work out what weightings they associate those values, you weigh up the different options against each of the values, you come to a weighted decision. But what if people aren't even consistent about what they want and can't articulate that even with some sort of process? Then your values will shift depending on who's in the meeting and what they care about today. So that's problematic preferences. I guess, Drew, that's a bit like shifting goalposts, uh, which and that the I suppose practitioners talk a lot in their about in their organization. Yeah, and, and we'll get into some examples later. But I mean, I've been in plenty of meetings where I've just sort of been thinking, what are we actually even trying to do here? You, what do people want? Tell me what you want and I'll do it. But we don't seem to have something we want. We're just sort of here to gripe or to express our feelings. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of the risk assessment conversations that we have on the podcast, Drew, and one of the points that you always make, which I like, which is, you know, if you do, you should be doing a risk assessment when there's an, an immediate decision that needs to be made and can be made through the risk management process. Yeah, if there's no decision, then it's very hard to, and that's what they say, is that they say that you sort of understand people's values based on the decisions that get made. You can't make decisions by first working out what people's values are. The second thing they say is unclear technology. And the word technology there, I think they're really talking just about organizational processes. So they say that the organization's processes aren't understood by its own members. So people sort of know how things work by trial and error or experience or other people telling them. David, I don't know what this is like for organizations you've worked with, but 
Absolutely, both at university and in the public service. There's a formal policy and a procedure for everything. But if you want to know how something gets done and how you're actually supposed to do it, it's pointless to go and read the policy or the procedure. Um, it'll always be there's a particular form you need to give to a particular person. And the only way you know that is either someone tells you or you hand in the wrong form and someone tells you it's the wrong form or you've given it to the wrong person. And eventually you work out who the right person is or the right form. So that's what they sort of mean by trial and error. Yeah, I agree. I think something that's written down in black and white has already been turned into something that's very grey inside the organisation and you've got to find out what that is. And I agree with you, it's in most of the organisations I've been in, I mean, with some exceptions around policy, but yeah, for the vast majority, it's find out how something actually gets done. And the third thing, and this is kind of key to the whole model, is fluid participation. So people vary in the amount of time and attention they can devote to any sort of particular activity. And whether they get involved in a decision or not has less to do with where they sort of, what their formal job is, and more how much other stuff they've got going on. So, you know, it might be you're part of a committee, the committee meets every month, but you don't go every month. Sometimes you put in an apology, sometimes you send your deputy. And so if you're at that meeting every month and you look at the membership, it's a different group of people who show up based on the time of year and who really cares about that particular meeting and for whom it's you know, not a priority. And so that, that's fluid participation. Your decisions are made by the people who happen to be in the room at the time, but that can change. So, Drew, with these three properties, these problematic preferences, unclear, let's call it processes, uh, and fluid participation, there's three sort of phenomena, sort of real-world phenomena that the paper's trying to explain. Do you want to take us through those as well? Yeah. So I, I'm sort of taking this directly from the paper and... I'm not 100% certain on what each of these three things means. They go through this fairly briefly. Um, but the first question they have is sort of what counts as intelligent decision making? And I think what they mean is you can easily see in rational decision making theory when you've got it right, there's an optimal decision. But sort of what counts as good decisions when things are this close to anarchy? You know, you could imagine it as a sort of barter system where everyone's got their own values and they trade off with each other and they negotiate. And that, if, if that was the case, you could measure good decision making just by over time, you ask people how happy they are with decisions and the sort of market of ideas and decisions takes care of it. But that's obviously not what's going on. There's no like horse trading around these meetings. It's not like I vote for you if you vote for me. It's whichever one of us shows up casts a vote. So the second one is, how do you then factor that in to decision processes? How do you have a model of how decisions are made that takes into account that not everyone cares about every decision and people drop in and out of the processes? They say, in fact, the most important decision each person has to make is which decisions do you spend your time on? Which decisions do you get involved in? And we've got to have a way of modelling that decision, the decision about which decisions you care about. And then the third one is just... What does management look like inside an anarchy? Because you know, all of these organisations do have management structures. They do have formal processes. What are those things doing? And how do we make them do it well? Because a good theory of decision-making should help us make better decisions. And that means we've got to have management structures that work with instead of against the anarchy. And I think, Drew, you know, and we've got to think about the time this, this, this paper was done uh, again half a century ago. And now we, we hear a lot about practitioners will say that, oh, I don't leave a decision to chance when I go into a meeting. I make sure I know the way that that decision is going to get made beforehand by doing a whole lot, lot of stakeholder management and knowing who the power brokers are in particular topics, in particular organisations, and, and making sure they're understanding and onside. And, and so I think there's... I think it'd be fair to say today inside organisations, there's a whole lot of horse trading that goes on outside of the, the meeting where the decision gets made, or there may well be. And that horse trading relies on you knowing what decisions can be made inside each okay. meeting. And yes. I think one of the things about an anarchy is often you don't even know what the decision is or what the problems are that people are trying to solve until you get to the meeting. I think that's a really good point that we'll get to. That we'll, we'll get to. So great point. So it's like the anarchy prevents you having that sort of strategic approach to it that you'd like to have to make decisions. So, Drew, we've said this paper tries to come up with a model that can generally explain how, how decisions get made in these, these anarchies that you're talking about and hopefully give some insight into how different organisational structures might, might influence things for better or for worse. So the, 
the basic idea here is that traditionally we think of a decision being made in quite a linear fashion. I think you mentioned this briefly at the start of the podcast. We know that we need to make a decision. There's a problem or, or an opportunity right in front of us. We come up with a range of options. We evaluate those options compared with our goals, objectives, um, and, and constraints and um, other factors. And then we pick you know, the best option and we, we move forward with that. But that's not kind of what this model says. No. So, so, so what Cohen says is that the organization always has a number of different things just floating around loosely. So the first thing is you've got choice opportunities looking for problems to solve. So you, and an example of a choice opportunity might be, say, a budget meeting or a hiring decision. This is a chance to make a decision. You've also got issues and feelings looking for decision situations in which they can be aired. So these are people who are annoyed about something or aggrieved about something or want something that happens. They're looking for meetings where they can complain about those things. Then you've got solutions looking for issues that might be they might be the answer to. So you've got solutions wandering around looking for problems. And you've got decision makers looking for stuff to do. So I'll just quote this directly from the paper. One can view a choice opportunity as a garbage can into which various kinds of problems and solutions are dumped by participants as they're generated. The mix of garbage in a single can depends on the mix of cans available, on the labels attached to the alternative cans, on what garbage is currently being produced, and on the speed with which garbage is collected and removed from the scene. So every meeting is in fact a little garbage can, and people bring to each meeting whatever problems and solutions they think belong at that meeting, even if other people don't think that they actually belong. So in formal terms, we've got four variables. So each one of these things changes over time. And this is what their model is going to simulate is the generation of each of these four things. So the first one is you've got a stream of choices. So this is the one thing the organization has got control over. Your choices get defined by the organization. Usually they happen at fixed times, and usually there's a list of eligible participants. People are allowed to be involved in those decisions. So you might be setting the annual budget. It might be having a regular meeting to approve new programs or new spending. It might be following the process for hiring a new staff member. You Pretty much any time you have a meeting, you've got some sort of choice opportunity. And I think, Drew, this, I think into our, into our safety realm, it could be a, a health and safety committee meeting. It could be a, a monthly uh, safety section of the management meeting. It could be a quarterly uh, executive safety committee. It's We've got all of these choice opportunities that we need. To, that You know, I think the name of the paper, thinking of these each of these meetings as garbage cans, is, uh, is a nice thing to have in your mind uh, when, you, when you think about these meetings. It might, people might feel good about calling their meetings garbage cans. <laughs> So the second thing you've got is a stream of problems. Problems, are, they're not as well defined as choices because the thing is that in any organisation and particularly in places like universities or the public service, there's an almost infinite number of things that you could be worried about because things can come from inside the organisation and outside the organisation. So, you know, a problem could be anything from social pressure to reduce the carbon footprint to Jim's frustration that there's no place to get a good coffee. You know, everyone's got things that they care about. You know, it might be someone's come back from a training course and now they're really excited about safety management systems or you know, anything that someone's worried about becomes a problem. So every problem has got a time when it becomes visible and it's got a limited set of sort of choice opportunities where it's legitimate to talk about it. So, you know, not every problem is legitimate to talk about in every meeting. You know, you probably can't go into a hiring meeting and hijack the meeting to talk about the lack of a good coffee place on campus. People may in fact do that, but <laughs> you're not supposed to. But on the other hand, you've got a meeting about the travel budget. Someone can come into that meeting concerned about the carbon footprint. And it really is quite legitimate for them to raise that as a problem and something people should be thinking about and solving. Is the university or the organization's carbon footprint is something you should be talking about when you're setting the travel budget. Now, any problem and solution take a certain amount of energy to match them together. So that's, that's not the total resource to solve the problem. It's just sort of the amount of energy that's needed to agree that this problem matches this solution. The third thing you've got is you've got a stream of solutions. And, and this is the bit that I personally really love, is the fact that under this model, problems and solutions 
don't just go in one direction, they go in both directions. So everyone who's got a problem is wandering around looking for a solution. But there are also people with solutions who are going around looking for problems. So a good example of that is, well, they have it in the paper, and I think it still sort of works now, is having a computer or having an automated workflow. You, those aren't problems needing to be solved. Those are solutions. And the person who's really keen on automated workflows is going around looking for processes that can be improved by adding in an automated workflow. The person who's bought a new computer is saying, well, we could use this for budgeting. We could use this for scheduling. We could use this. We could write a program that does seating allocations. Um, it's you're a solution in need of a problem. And I think safety is actually full of these things. Yeah, we've got management systems. We've got policies. We've got writing procedures. We've got risk assessments. We've got training courses. We've got staff surveys and culture measurement instruments. They're all solutions looking for a problem to deploy them against. Um, now, in the paper, they've got a sort of matching coefficient, how well each solution deals with each problem. So you don't need a perfect match, but if it's not a good match, then it's going to take you more energy to agree that the solution matches the problem. So, you know, if someone's problem is lack of time and your solution is to send them on a training course, it's going to take lots of energy in the meeting for everyone to agree that that's actually a good solution. On the other hand, if your problem is workflows are too clunky and your solution is an automated workflow, that might be a nice good match. Easy for people to agree the problem matches the solution, move on. And then the fourth variable is the amount of energy that each participant has. So you can think of this as sort of how long people are willing to sit in meetings talking about things. Um, everyone's got a fixed amount of energy. Once they're out of energy, they stop showing up to meetings. So people can't go to every meeting if they're sitting in a meeting talking about supplying coffee for too long, that will use up all of their energy and their capacity to get involved in making other decisions. Yeah, I think that idea, Drew, of stream of solutions and, and energy is, is really important because I was thinking as you were describing the stream of solutions about the matching coefficient is that uh, it's also knowing what problem is being actually, what the solution, what problem the solution is being attached to because we might think that some of our recommendations from incident investigations don't really match the uh, the problem of what contributed to the incident in the first place, but maybe those recommendations really do match getting the incident closed out and getting the board off management's back. So it could be really interesting to also think about, uh, is every person in that meeting actually solving the same problem when they're talking about solutions? David, I didn't have it in the notes, but I think incident investigations are a great example of choice opportunities. So it's actually fairly poorly defined what you're trying to achieve when you do an incident investigation. We want to make safety better. But some people come along to incident investigations with particular problems they want solved. So they see the organisation as having a culture problem or having a training problem or having a frontline supervision problem. And they want that problem to be solved as part of the incident investigation. Your other people have got solutions. They want a new training package approved. They want to hire some consultancy that they've been wanting to hire for ages. They want to put in place some metrics that they think are really good metrics. So they come along to the meeting trying to sell solutions. And if you've got enough energy to match the people who care about culture with the people who think culture is solved by doing a survey, then bingo, we've got a decision made. We now have a recommendation goes into the incident report, institute a culture survey, and we've made a decision. But if we're having trouble with the matching, then we're going to have hours of argument with people just talking about their own problems, talking about their own solutions, and draining people's energy without ever finding a good match between a problem solution and the decision opportunity. Yeah, I must admit, Drew, the incident investigation example was one that I thought of a lot as as choice opportunities and you know solutions looking for problems, problems looking for solutions. Maybe maybe this year, Drew, maybe fiftieth anniversary of this paper, we could sort of dust it off and maybe try and write something that applies it in that in that context, make it easy for people to, to understand it. Oh, hey, yeah, that'd be fun. I like a garbage can model of instant investigation or instant investigations as organisational choice opportunities. Yeah, there you go. So, in, Drew, in a total anarchy, anyone can show up to any meeting and talk about any problem and potentially make any decision. But organisations aren't total anarchies. Organisations are, at least in the uh, description in this paper, organised anarchies. So there's always some constraints about who can attend which meetings and and who can make and which meetings to make certain types of decisions. And like you said earlier, what's legitimate, um, socially legitimate to talk about 
at these individual meetings. And if you so if you put all this together, decisions get made at meetings. And I mean, this was maybe the case when the paper was. I'm, I'm, I still believe that it's still the case now. Like lots of decisions get made at, as somewhat a consensus between whatever the appropriate forum is inside an organisation. And not everyone who can actually show up will show up. So the people who do show up, they bring sort of a combination of issues that they care about, solutions that they'd like to see interested. And like you said, when there's enough energy with the people who are in the room, that there seems like there's a problem that matches a solution, uh, there's no no objections, a decision will get made. So Drew, do you want to run through a couple of real examples that might kind of help this make sense in addition to the incident investigation example? Sure. So, So the one that immediately sprung to mind for me was standards committee meetings. David, I don't know if you've ever been involved in writing any standards. Not industry standards. No, I haven't. And not, no real desire to either. No, I, I made a decision myself a long while ago that no matter how legitimate it might seem, they are not worth the energy involved. And I think the garbage can model gives me a sort of good rationale and explanation for why I have this problem. So they're a classic example of an organized anarchy because in principle, you know, anyone can get involved in writing a standard. And if you ever try complaining about a standard, everyone will tell you, oh, but you had plenty of opportunity to complain about the standard through the standard writing processes. We sent it out to all of these consultative committees and you didn't give us any feedback, so it's your own fault the standard's bad. But you know, it's a classic example of, do you have the energy to get involved in trying to be heard through this long drawn out process? We have to sit through multiple meetings of multiple people, all airing out their own problems and solutions that they want. Um, most standards don't have a clearly defined or clearly agreed goal. You know, personally, most standards that I hate, my very first question is, why is there even a standard about this? Yeah, there's a standard because someone wanted a standard. So you could think of them as decision-making opportunities. Some people have got particular problems they want solved by the standard. So if you look at new safety standards, often people are saying, oh, it's because the existing standards don't cover my industry or they don't sufficiently cover security or they don't sufficiently cover privacy or they cover safety but not well-being. So people have got sort of like vested interests they want solved. You've got other people who want particular solutions. So they've got a particular technique that they've invented or a particular metric that they want included in the standard. And so you've got this mix of a decision-making opportunity Vested interests about the problems, vested interests about the solutions. And that's why standards seem so random and chaotic. Because it's all a negotiation between the problems and the solutions based on who turns up to which meeting. And you can have the same organisation producing a series of standards on the same topic. And they're inconsistent because different people have shown up to the meetings for each of the different substandards. Andrew, the second example that you've got here is enforceable undertakings. And just to make that clear for all of our international listeners outside of Australia is an enforceable undertaking is something that is part of the legal framework in Australia, where if you're an organisation that's had a breach of the safety legislation or regulations, typically following a serious uh, or, or fatal incident, then you have the opportunity to enter into an agreement with the regulator to avoid legal proceedings by making a commitment to improve safety, usually quite a sizable financial commitment that would be, say, 10 times what the potential fine might be, or five or 10 times what the potential fine might be. It's attractive to to the regulators because uh, they can evidence safety improvement within industry, and it's also attractive to organisations to avoid the legal process. So, Drew, have I kind of adequately describe what this enforceable undertaking process is? I thought it might be good to do before we dived in. Yes, no, thank you for that. No, I think that's a good explanation. And so the sort of key thing is you've got this big potential pot of money that needs to be allocated in a way which is vaguely related to what went wrong in the first place and that provides some sort of public benefit for safety. That's the sort of key thing with enforceable undertakings is it can't just be of benefit to the company that's spending the money. It has to be of benefit to the broader community. But beyond that, there's a huge amount of freedom. And so anyone who's involved in the process might have particular things that they want addressed. So you're very often the regulator's interested in uh, producing something that is sort of guidance material that is helpful for the general industry. And then you've got other people who've got particular solutions. Um, And I think, so our lab's been involved a number of times in enforceable undertakings. 
And each time we've got dragged in, it's not that someone has clearly defined a problem and said, hey, Griffith University is the right person to solve, right organization to solve this problem. It's more they're thinking, hey, it'd be really cool to get Griffith involved in this. And so they're basically looking for us as a solution, the sort of work we do, saying, how could we pay for some of this using the enforceable undertaking? And so the process of coming up with the undertaking is then a negotiation between the people who've defined the problems and the people who want us as a solution to find a sort of description of the problem that we are a good solution to. So you can see the sort of garbage can model. It's sort of like very obvious work. Um, you know, the garbage can has a clear label based on the type of incident and the type of industry. But then everyone's throwing into the bucket whatever problems or solutions they think are a good way to use that money. Yeah, Drew, and I think um, the last example here before we move on is just like end of financial year budget. So, you know, budgeting time is a time where there's lots of solutions floating around. There's lots of problems floating around and there's a certain bucket of cash. And it's just lots of people, lots of energy for a short period of time in the organization to try to to try to match these problems with solutions and and get things approved until all the cash is gone. And I think, um, again, sort of having a mental picture in your head of a garbage can of all of those, all those hands going into the can, trying trying to grab cash with their own problem and their own solution is a good way to think about, or is it a, a, I don't know, a nice way to think about it. So Drew, how can the organization then influence this process? Uh, what, what are things that organizations can, can do? So if you're reading the paper, I think this is the bit where it gets fairly hard to follow because some of the things they're talking about are basically parameters in their mathematical model. And some of them are more things that you might have some sort of conscious control over. So one of the things that you don't have total control over is just how much sort of overall energy there is. So they talk about high energy and low energy organizations, or high load and low load organizations. That, you know, in theory, every problem could be matched with a solution, but only if you're totally efficient in a high load organization. Other organizations have got plenty of time, plenty of energy. They're comfortable with making decisions slowly. You know, eventually every problem is going to find a solution and every solution is going to find a problem. But you probably don't get to choose what sort of energy you have. What you might have some control over, though, is how you decide who can make decisions. So there are sort of three extreme cases, and then most people are actually hybrids of the three. So you could have totally unsegmented where anyone could get involved in any decision. That would just be chaos. You could have a hierarchical structure, structure where the more important decisions must be made by more important people. Or you could have an extremely specialized structure where each particular type of decision has one person that they've got control over. And so you know, each person controls one decision, each decision gets controlled by one person. And you know, the reality is that we tend to be a mix of the two. You know, Most organizations have got some sort of hierarchy and it's often the more important you are, the more decisions you can be involved in. So the more you've got to choose your energy about which decisions you are actually involved in. So Drew, yeah, I think, I think that high energy organizations and low energy organizations, I think people who, you know, I think when we think back to Rasmussen's risk modeling in a dynamic society, we talked about this constant drive from organizations to be efficient and the constant push from, for people to get things done as uh, efficiently as possible as well. So I think we see that in individual people in which decisions they can be involved in, but also the expectations of individual roles in organizations, just how many different, uh, let's say, choice opportunities individual roles are expected to be to be involved in. So that's probably a, a good reflection point for people to, to just think about how much certain roles in the organization, how many decisions certain roles in the organizations are being asked to be involved in, and then maybe not being offended when they don't show up to every meeting. And so once you start running the model, what happens is each of these decision situations, usually there has to be a decision made. So, you know, if an organization's got a budget, you've got to set a budget. If you've got to allocate the money, you've got to allocate the money. If you've got to hire someone, you've got to hire someone. But that doesn't mean that every problem and solution that get brought along to that decision get matched and solved. Often all you need is just one match and that's enough to make a decision. And then the rest of them need to have something else happen to them. Maybe they get deferred till next time. Maybe they go off and they find a different decision to get attached to. One of the things they say is that sometimes we can't make a decision until most of the problems and solutions give up and go somewhere else, which then allows us to make a decision with what's left. 
So that sort of gets into then the conclusions once they start running the model. So the first one they say is that decision-making processes often don't solve problems. They make the decision, but the problems go off and get attached to different decisions. And often the more important a choice is, the more people will want to attach their problems and solutions to that choice, making it impossible to make the choice. So you know, a good example of that might be a really high-profile incident. You know, everyone who's got something to say about safety is going to want it associated with that particular incident. They're going to be very dissatisfied if we're not willing to talk about culture or we're not willing to talk about the management systems, we're not willing to talk about risk assessment. Whatever thing they want talked about, they want talked about associated with that incident. And it's not until people sort of realise we're not getting anything done here. If I want something done about culture, maybe I'd be better taking that off to the budget meeting and getting a budget allocation for it. Or maybe I'd be better just take going and doing it myself. Once those people give up and go away, that's when we get the final recommendations written. When we've got a small enough number of choice decisions left that we can just make the decisions. So a good example might be the one in there that prompted this paper about this sort of like really important hiring decision. Everyone wanted something out of the new dean. Maybe one person wanted someone who was young and exciting. Another person wanted someone who had a good public persona. Another one was someone who was a good researcher who'd bring prestige to the department. And you can't do all of those things at once. So ultimately, once people who are looking for prestige realize, okay, I'm not going to get that done through this decision. I'm going to get prestige to the department somewhere else. They go away and they try to solve their prestige problem by getting a grant that can hire someone. And the person who wants someone young and exciting realizes, oh, I can get this better done through the Equal Employment Opportunity Policy. I'll go and talk about it at that meeting. And then eventually we can just make a decision to hire someone once we don't have to solve everyone's problem with that decision. And so, Drew, the second conclusion there is that decision-making, decision-makers and problems sort of track one another through a series of these choices or choice opportunities, sometimes without seeming to make any process. So, for example, say a person who's concerned with you know the, the poor onboarding process for new employees because maybe they've had some new employees into, the, into their department that they haven't felt up to speed on, on what they've needed them to do. They take the problem to the budget meeting to try to get some funds for the onboarding process. They then go to the training and development or the competency system workshop to try to get something changed in the training system. They then go to a safety brainstorming day because they can maybe tack it on the back of safety induction training. And they can sometimes find themselves trapped in dealing with the same problem, even when they sort of change roles themselves because they're sort of attached to this kind of problem now because they've been so so involved in trying to get a decision made for, for a period of time. Yeah, I think we've all known those people, David, who doesn't matter what the meeting is, you know, if that person's at the meeting, they're going to be talking about their personal hobby horse. And I think we've all been that person where there's an issue we're trying to get solved. And we just have to, like, find opportunity after opportunity after opportunity trying to get it solved until eventually we find a time and a place where someone is actually willing to make a decision about it. So is that true if you hear hear a colleague saying, I'm just going to get on my soapbox for a minute? Typically, it'll be something you've already heard before <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> at a different meeting. And the final thing they say is that problem, most problems do eventually get solved. So this is not a description of dysfunction. You know, it might seem chaotic, but problems don't get solved the first time they show up. So there's a lot of energy often gets wasted with problems and solutions showing up to the wrong meetings or showing up without there being a match at the right time. But, you know, eventually when the problem is in the right place with the right solution available and no other things are competing for people's attention, that's when a problem gets solved. I think we've all experienced that one as well, that it's often not at the important meetings, it's at the small meetings that are very limited in scope where there aren't other issues clamouring for attention. That's sometimes when important things do get solved because everyone who's there only cares about that one particular thing getting solved. Yeah, so that, and the model sort of, the parameters of the model account for that by saying in that smaller sort of meeting with less problems and maybe less solutions with maybe people with more individual energy, there's going to be more energy to create that match between the problem and the solution in that in that environment or in that choice opportunity. So Drew, let's talk about some practical takeaways and and wrap this one up. So do you want to, do you want to get us started with uh, what you think is good for us to learn and take away? Okay, so, so the first one isn't really a takeaway. It's just the point about these sorts of models are the models themselves are not always perfect and they're very sensitive to exactly the internal variables. So don't take this away as a recipe for plugging in the parameters of your own organization and seeing how decisions are going to get made. 
It's more about the sort of insights it gives you into the way the world works. So once you've got the model in your head, you can see it happening. And the first sort of really useful insight, I think, is this decoupling of choices, problems and solutions. So I think once you begin to see that actually they're three separate things, choice opportunities, problems that need to be solved, solutions looking for problems. Once you start seeing those things, it takes away a bit of the frustration that you feel when you see decisions going nowhere. You realize, actually, no, my job here is not to get this problem solved. This meeting needs to come to a decision. That's our job here. My problem just needs to find a decision where it can be solved. Maybe it's not this one. Maybe it's the next one. And finding the right place to take that problem rather than being frustrated that it's not being dealt with through this particular decision. Second thing, I think particularly this year, I'm really feeling this one. It gives you a bit of permission to be strategic about your own decision-making energy. You don't have to be part of every decision, particularly if the decision isn't going to help solve the problems that you care about. It's okay to be strategic about which decisions you take part in with more focused goals or ones that have got lots of resources to deal with multiple problems at once. I think particularly, Drew, there's a lot of demand on particularly safety practitioners' times because you know, organizations know that there's lots of things that can have potential safety implications and lots of managers in organizations uh, that perhaps lack a bit of psychological safety really want to make sure that there's a safety person involved in every organizational decision in case it's ever questioned down the track about, you know, why wasn't safety involved in this or, you know, that decision leads to some compromise in safety in some way. So I know of practitioners and I've experienced this myself of being asked to be involved in almost every decision. And you end up coming along to a meeting and going, why am I here? Uh, but just no one wants to hold a meeting without having a safety person there. Yeah, I experienced the same thing with industry-focused research. Every time someone's got a meeting about work-integrated learning or industry research, they want people from our team there because they think, hey, you guys know about industry. Um, but that doesn't mean that it, those meetings are actually going to help us with any of our problems or we've got any particular solutions to the problems that people are bringing to those meetings. So Drew, I think the third takeaway here is being clear about whether we have a problem looking for a solution or a solution looking for a problem or a sort of a paired problem solution that's looking for a decision to be made. And I think sometimes we aren't honest with ourselves about which one of these three it is and can end up wasting a lot of time and energy. And I think, you know, I've been definitely throughout my career at times very much walking around organizations with a set of solutions looking for problems to attach themselves to and, you know, maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes having a paired problem and solution, you know, looking for a decision to be made. But I think, you know, what's probably really important to take away here is actually understanding what all the problems are uh, in the organization and then the solutions and the choice opportunities sort of come after that, I would say. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about a workshop I was in a few weeks ago to do with metrics. And I think like safety indicators and metrics are a classic example of a solution, not a problem. And very often, no one has defined what is the problem that you're trying to solve by creating metrics. So you know, we're arguing about what is the best metric to use in the absence of any actual problem for which a metric is a good answer. Yeah, so if the problem is understanding safety, then go and talk to people involved in hazardous work and go and observe hazardous work and understand safety. Like, don't sit and wait till the end of the month for some, you know, some unhelpful data to flow through. So I think you're right. I think defining the problem, it was, I understand Albert Einstein, you know, one of the quotes I guess talked a lot about in learning teams training is, you know, an Albert Einstein quote that says, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and then five minutes coming up with solutions. And I think it's a pretty good sort of reference point to carry in your mind. I think there are some people though, where it's kind of our job to have solutions. So I certainly feel this as an academic, and I think it's sometimes good advice for young academics looking for ways to make their research relevant, is to recognize that what we have is a solution. And what we should be doing is being conscious that there are multiple problems that that solution works with. You know, you might think that what you've discovered is, you know, you've done your PhD in safety, but safety is usually a problem, not a solution. What you've actually created in your PhD might be an approach that might be useful for a whole range of different problems. You got to go out and find people with problems, listen to their problems, and then find ways to adapt and apply the stuff that you've come up with 
instead of just assuming that because you started with one particular problem, that's the only problem that your work is relevant for. Yeah, great point, Drew. So do you want to wrap us up here on the practical takeaways? Uh, so I think we've sort of come to, uh, I mean, they, these aren't hugely useful takeaways because mostly this is just about a way of looking at the world and understanding how you see the world. Well, I think the takeaway for me is just that 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 frame of reference for how decisions get made, that idea that there's this, um, there's these decision makers, there's this stream of uh, choice opportunities, there's sets of problems, there's solutions, and there's a certain amount of energy. And I think uh, in in safety, you know, I think that's not a bad framework to think about. What are the choice opportunities I've got? How well do I understand what all the problems are? How well have I thought about the solutions and the matching of those solutions to problems? And then how am I strategic around the organization's energy to invest in uh, agreeing on the matching between the solutions and the problems? So I actually think that for me would have been a nice mental model to carry through my practitioner career, I think. Actually, I do have one very practical takeaway to attach to that, David, which is that I think for a safety manager particularly, it is important to always have a drawer with several different solutions in. So these are things that you would like implemented in your organization for safety, but you don't have to push them all the time. You can just have them in your drawer waiting for a problem for which that is the solution. You know, Maybe that problem will be a particular incident. Maybe it will be some external pressure. Maybe it will be an organizational change program where you can just look, you know, be the hero by just open the drawer and say, look, here is a carefully thought out plan for solving this problem. <laughs> I didn't know it was this problem I was going to be solving, but I've had the solution ready, just waiting for the right problem. And here's the opportunity to create the match. The goal is to have the match, not to always shove your solutions down people's throats. Yeah, I think that's a great practical takeaway, Drew. So the question we asked this week was, why, why are organisations sometimes bad at making decisions? Well, hopefully the garbage can model gives you at least an interesting new way to think about that. Yep, and sometimes you just run out of energy to, uh, to match a solution to a problem. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us in the conversation on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. <laughs>